This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, again, I just pray that we will come away with just a deeper understanding of the, the truths that you have given us as a people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said, I've, we left off last time, and, I, and again, I threw out, it's a pretty heavy thought. I'm just saying that if the world's experts... The vast majority of the experts, the scientists, those that have studied these things in depth, the chemists, the physicists, the biologists, the zoologists, if they're right and what they're adamant about, then I'm sorry, our religion is a joke. Our religion is is a joke. If evolution is true, Christianity cannot possibly be true. Adventism especially is a joke. Ellen White, you know everything Ellen White said? And that's pretty heavy. And as I said, I spent a lot of time reading the philosophy of science. I can say that it doesn't bother me, okay, because it's just, you know, in fact, it's very funny. I have a chapter in the book on the Galileo trial. And I'm just going to touch on this very quickly. People often view the Galileo trial as a prime example of ignorant religionists fighting against the rational progress of science. And to a certain degree, there's a modicum of truth to that. But I would argue that the real message is the opposite message. Galileo, the the chapter was called Galileo's Heresy. And they were going to torture a poor old Galileo for four positions. That the earth sits immovable in the center of the universe and all the planets circle it in perfect sphere. That's what they were teaching, okay? And Galileo said no. And they were gonna, they were, you know, we know the story. But let me ask you a question. Where does the Bible teach that the earth sits immobile at the center of the universe and all the planets and suns and stars and all that orbit the earth in perfect spheres. That's not the Bible. That was science. That was the, the science of Aristotle that for 1,500 years or longer, the smartest people, the scientists, the quote, PhDs, the most educated people taught and believed. And what happened was the Christian church, just like the Christian church does today, you know, some of Darwin's earliest defenders were the Christians, were the churchmen. The early scientists said, this is a bunch of hickey. But it was the Christians who fell over themselves to try to accommodate it as it is today. And it was the Christian church had taken Aristotle's science. Aristotle taught that the earth sat immovable in the center of the universe and all the planets orbited it at perfect circles at constant speeds. That was the latest and greatest science. And the church, Christian church, compromising, and the Protestants were no better than the Romans, compromising linked scripture to the latest and greatest science, and you got the farce of the Galileo trial. 
And my argument is that theistic evolutionists today, they are the spiritual and intellectual heirs of the Roman Inquisition. And that's a total different spin that you normally hear on it. And anyway, that's a chapter in the book. Now, I, again, I brought that up because I guess the idea is coming back to what I'm saying. Are you saying all these scientists, all these people, the experts are wrong? Well, they've been wrong before. If it's fascinating, you study the history of science. It's amazing how many things that were once believed, that were never challenged, that were just accepted as understood, have been thrown out. And what we think our age is any different, any better. And again, and I'll come back to this later, remind me, the fact that the theory works. Well, here. Just give you an example of that. Let's go back to the Aristotelian cosmos. Okay, taught that the Earth sits immobile in the center of the universe. First, it teaches that the Earth sits immobile. Wrong. In the center of the universe. Wrong. And the planets circle the Earth. Wrong. And they circle it and they orbit it in perfect circles. Wrong. And they orbit it at constant speeds. Wrong. Okay? A scientific theory wrong on every particular. And guess what, folks? For 1,500 years, if you wanted to predict where's Venus going to be in the sky in six months, you could do it. The theory worked. If you wanted to sail your ship from Venice to Genoa using stars, using a science built on a theory that was wrong in every particular, guess what? It worked. You could do it. So can you see my point? Just because a theory works, just because you can make accurate predictions is a total separate issue from whether it's true. I'll give you one more example. Suppose you have a theory, and according to my theory, every time you do X, Y is going to happen. Okay? Doesn't matter what it is. My theory is every time, like they gave me these wonderful blackboards here, we could do this. All right. I don't know. All right, here's X. I used to say technology, you can't fail with a blackboard. <laughs> oh, it can, or is it just me? You need to open it. Oh. And then what? Oh, turn it around? You turn it around? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Mr. Handyman here. Human error. Okay, here's your theory. X, and then Y is going to happen. All right, that's... Read my hand. I used to study Egyptian hieroglyphics, and my teacher used to tell me he could read my English. I mean, he could read my hieroglyphs. He couldn't read my English. Okay, let me just put this up. This is... I was going to blame the technology, and it was human error. Okay, look, my theory, X. I say I got my theory, and any time you do X, Y is going to happen. And so, they, all right, let's test the theory. So they test it in a, in a lab in France, and they keep all the conditions the same. And every time X happens, just like the theory said why happens. And you know, one of the important things in science is repeatability. Somebody claims they do something in a lab, they say, okay, that's great, let's repeat it. So they do it in Paris, they do the experiment. They do it in Washington State, they do the experiment. And every single time they do X, Y happens. Every time without exception. Because according to my theory, every time you do X, 
why is going to happen. And every experiment, every time, without fail, proved you did X, Y happened. So is my theory correct? What would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it has apps. It could be, but predict, could, pre, correct predictions can be completely irrelevant to whether a theory is true or not. You've got the history of science littered with correct theories. I mean, with, with, with the, of, of accurate predictions by theories that have been completely debunked. And I'm going to give you a silly example. But it's silly, but it still makes the point. And it makes the point that goes back somewhat to what I said about the bones in the ground. When I, you know, you're not going to deny the bones in the ground. But what your explanation from them could be is another issue. I have a theory. Here, you've got a little room up here. I have a theory, okay, you're sure now. Some said yes, okay. Okay, my theory is that there are invisible spiders from Mars. And they push everything to the ground. So I'm going to, my theory is that there are invisible spiders from Mars and they push everything to the ground. So my prediction, if my invisible spiders from Mars theory is correct, with apologies to David Bowie, those of you who shouldn't know about David Bowie anyway, he's too, too young for that. My theory, I'm going to test my theory. Whoa! Wow, I said there are invisible spiders from Mars pushing things to the ground. I'm going to try it over here, okay? If I say my theory is correct, they're invisible spiders from Mars pushing things to the ground. Boom. They test it in France. That's silly, but can you see my point here? Now, you can have a lot of scientific theories make all sorts of predictions. You can get all sorts of technology from them, but it's totally separate from whether the theory happens to be correct or not. And the reason that is important is because when you challenge science, but you often hear the argument, not just, but it's science. What's the other argument that you sometimes hear? It's in this context. What's the argument? The science has got to be correct because the science what? The science works. That's the thing. The idea that, well, the science works. And if the same science they use to let off an atom bomb is the same part of the same science they use to date the age of rocks, therefore, we have to trust that the age of rocks is correct because the science works. And now that's fine. The science might actually be correct. In fact, I, th but there was a, what actually inspired me, this whole thing, is I have been for decades, I have been getting the great courses by the teaching company. Anybody know the great courses? I must have, I've got probably a thousand lectures just on my iPhone alone. Not from that. Started with cassettes, and there was a series of 36 lectures by a guy named Stephen Goldman called Science Wars, and that's what inspired my book. I listened to those lectures over and over, bought the transcripts, studied them. I wanted to dedicate the book to him, but I know he would have been horrified. <laughs> but the first person I sent, I, I sent him the book. And I wrote him a letter, and I just said, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. Your book and your lectures inspired me. You, you know, I said, obviously, we're working with different presuppositions. He's an evolutionist. But I said, I'm working from different assumptions than you. And remember, your whole lecture thing was on the assumptions of science. But I'd like to think I was as good of a student as you were a teacher. 
And I said, I was tempted to dedicate the book to you, but I know you would have been horrified, but I'm just sending you a copy of the book. I never heard anything back from him. But Goldman, he was the one that first idea. He showed how by the end of the 19th century, almost every foundational theory in science was being completely overturned. You know, general relativity, special relativity, quantum theory. I mean, these were revolutions, totally changed everything and how they viewed the world. But again, they were telling these industrialists and these people, again, by the way, the theory that we now use the theory that you used to create your gizmo has been overturned. We no longer believe in the theory. And the industrial, they didn't care. They wanted to make the widget. As long as the widget worked, what do they care? If you build a scientific, if you build a device based on things falling to the ground, what do you care if you believe it's invisible spiders from Mars pushing it to the ground? If it works, it works. And for some people, that's all that science is. The moment you get into, he talked about this guy named Fourier who wrote these books on the theory of heat. And Fourier gave these formulas for heat and he called it Fourier's move. And he just said, look, don't, don't bother me with what heat is. I don't care what heat is. It's irrelevant to me what heat is. I just want to know what the formulas are, what you could expect, what predictions you could make using heat. What it is, all that stuff. That's a bunch of metaphysical, philosophical mumbo-jumbo that some would say science has nothing whatsoever to do with. Okay. Now, I don't say I necessarily agree with that. See, even though that, that review and... A today attack me as a scientific nihilist. I take a fairly moderate to conservative view of science. I do believe science does teach us some things about the real world, but they're very contingent, very narrow, very specialized. But when it comes to origins, again, science has got it. Again, think about it. If what we believe is true, then think how wrong the PhDs in chemistry, physics, biology, again, the smartest people, most educated, the experts, they got it completely wrong. And so I asked the question, why was science, which certainly seems to get so much right, Again, look at our cell phones, look at all our devices. As I said, though, quantum theory and general relativity, they both work, but they both can't be right. And yet our cell phones work. And again, some people, that's all that matters. But why on origins have they, they so completely missed the mark? Well, I think I, I know why, and that's what I'd like to talk about for a little while here. I think I'm going to use my... I'm going to try it on my computer. As I said, I've been jumping around. I have so much material, and I just don't want to. You know, as I said before, and I want to repeat this again, every age in history lives with myths. And we look back and we laugh at the myths of the ancients. But I believe if time would last, which I hope it doesn't, if time would last, some people in the future could look back and laugh at some of the myths of our age. But people say, oh, no, no, we don't believe in myths. We believe in science. But I believe this idea that science is the final arbiter of truth. I believe that's the meta-myth. That's the great myth of our age, that just because it's science, we have to bow down and kowtow to it. Okay, but why does science, which gets so much right, 
gets so much wrong. Again, we believe God created the world. I'm not going to get into this. When you read Genesis, I be, if you were to ask me right now what I believe, I don't, billions of years ago, God creates the universe. Okay, creates something out there. There's some primeval form, something that the Hebrew says the earth was tohu v'bohu, v'hoshek al penei tahom, uroach Elohim, reheret al penei aretz. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. There was something here. There was an earth that was without form and void, God moved on the waters. There was waters. God created something. Then, in six literal 24-hour days, God created our world, just as it's depicted in Genesis, and then rested on the seventh day. Now, that is radically, radically different from what science tells you vast majority of scientists will say the scientific data does not support that. Okay, and that's fine. Doesn't bother me because data, what the data just automatically jumps out of the ground? The data is automatic? See, the question, this is a whole thing I deal with in the book. Data has to be interpreted. You know, you find a bone in the ground. Does the bone say evolved 800 million years ago. Okay, no. You have to work on assumptions. And then you build your assumptions. You know, you build your science on that. But what happens if your assumptions are wrong? Anyway, why does science get it wrong? Well, I think science gets it wrong because science works upon two principles. Two principles that it absolutely has to work on. It can't be science if it doesn't work on these principles. And yet it's because of these principles, which make sense in and of themselves, but which in the end, I believe, are fundamentally flawed. And that's why science is completely wrong when it comes to our origins. What are these principles? Okay, And when I tell them to you, you will, for the most part, agree with them. And I agree with them in many ways. You wouldn't want science to function without them. But let's take a look. The first principle, and this goes back, there was a guy named, I believe it was Abelard of Bath, back in the 1200s, the 1300s. And the first principle, and I think most of us would agree on, is that science looks to the natural world. It must look only for natural answers, for natural phenomena. Okay, this asserts that we should not resort to supernatural claims to explain natural phenomena. Okay, biologists for existence should not explain the exceedingly complicated process of blood clot formation. I studied that one time years ago. It's enzymes, because you tend to think of enzymes breaking things down. And yet there's like a 16-step enzyme cascade or something. By um, You should not explain that through divine intervention. Science would not, could not work if everything or anything not understood was explained away as supernatural meddling. Okay? You want natural explanations for natural occurrences. What's the second one? The second principle, I mean, you agree on that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't want them, oh, well, we did this, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's the angels or imps are in your heart causing your heart to pound or whatever. You know, you want natural explanations. The second principle is that the laws of nature must remain constant. 
all things being equal, which they really rarely are, what a law does today, it did yesterday, and it will do tomorrow. And any variations in that law will occur from another law-like pattern that itself was influenced by another law-like pattern and on and on. Now, of course, there are aspects of the laws that we don't understand. We don't understand why the laws do these things, but we work with the idea that there's a constancy in nature, a constancy in the laws. I mean, you're going to get on a jet plane. You want to assume that the laws of aerodynamics that they use when they put the, the wings in the, in the tunnels and all that, and when they test flight it, test flight it, you're going to assume that the laws that they use to build the plane are going to be the same laws that are in existence when you get on an Airbus and fly somewhere. Okay, That's the way science couldn't work that way. When you drive across a bridge, you want to assume that the, the forces of torque and, and all the stuff, the principles, the law-like principles that are, are going to stay there when you drive across the bridge in the same way you fly in an airplane. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Could you see, I mean, if there wasn't a certain consistency, you couldn't possibly do science. Some even argue that science began, and I don't necessarily buy it, it's a nice theory. It's one of these, there's some truth to it. They say that science, they believe, began only in a Christian, why it began in a Christian culture. Because of our belief in the Logos, God, a rational God who created things rationally through the rational laws of nature. And you could follow these rational principles and so on. And to a certain degree, that makes some sense. But I'm not sure that that helps explain why science began here. Of course, the ancient Greeks were in many ways the first scientists, and they certainly weren't Christians. But anyway, you don't want to resort. The moment you don't know something, you resort to a supernatural explanation. And you want to assume that the laws of physics remain and the laws in nature remain constant. That's how science works. That's how it has to work. And that's precisely why it fails. It fails with origins. Because these assumptions, how logical they are and rational they are and practical they are, in the end are ultimately, I'd say, false. First of all, let's go back. Let's go. Take the first one, which requires natural causes for natural events. Okay? That's fine for hurricane tracking or for the analysis of whooping crane endocrinology. Okay? That's fine. But it's worse than worthless. It's worse than worthless. I sometimes lisp. It's worse, well, never mind. It's worse than worthless for origins that start out how? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It starts out with a supernatural act and from there displays one supernatural thing after another. One thing after another. You see what I'm saying? You read the Genesis account. What does Genesis say? You know, and God said, let there be, let there be light and there was light. Let there be, I mean, you, know, you, you just read and God said, the entire creation account is supernatural. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, an herb that yields seed. And that's exactly what happened. And God said, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and give him dominion. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. 
Okay, and then God took Eve out of the side. In other words, when you read Genesis, every aspect of the Genesis creation story from beginning to end was supernatural. I mean, God speaks it. How do we even wrap our minds around that? God speaks it, and, it, and it, God says, and it was so. Animals, life, everything. I mean, there's nothing in science that even comes close to that. Okay? But now, if you're going to, I want to read you a famous quote. This is a famous quote by a biologist. It's a little long, but listen to this. This is amazing. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so just stories, because we have a prior commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of context concepts that produced material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the initi initiated. And then he says this, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, our, our materialism, the belief that the world is purely material, it really is kind of absurd. And it's really counterintuitive. And we have to accept just so stories. But we absolutely refuse to allow a divine foot in the door. Now, think about this for a minute. If you do, again, this is the principle that you have to look just for natural explanations, for natural causes, okay, which, for the most part, I agree with. If you accept that, and therefore you absolutely rule out, you rule out before you start any kind of supernatural cause, you say, uh-uh. That's not science. That's not science. But again, that is an assumption. That is a philosophical assumption. It's not science which teaches that. Okay. But if you're going to say, okay, you absolutely rule out the supernatural, then how can you possibly get, how possibly could your science get creation right a creation that is supernatural from beginning to end. Can you see the point here? It's a supernatural creation. God speaks in six literal days forms. Man, every aspect of it is supernatural. But you say, it's almost like in a murder case. Somebody comes in and there's a murder case. And the detective, and let's say you committed the murder. And the detective comes in and he, you know the word a priori? It's a word, it's before experience. It's just something that's just assumed. You don't question it. It's just obvious. There's no question. You, he a priori says, absolutely, you did not do it. Then whatever, then whoever he eventually does arrest for the crime of necessity will have to be wrong, okay? So, if creation were 
a supernatural event. And I'm sorry. I read Genesis 1. Every, you know, he doesn't want a divine foot in the door. That's what this, that's what this biologist said, Richard Lewitton. He doesn't want a divine foot in the door. What do you do when every inch, every nook and cranny, every single aspect of it from beginning to end was supernatural? You know, I all look at it this way. Suppose somebody decides they want to study the origins of chess. But they decide right off the bat, right off the bat, they said, we are going to look only at the chess set itself, at the board, at the pieces, at the rules of the chess game. That's the only, we're going to look only at the material and the function of the chess set. We absolutely, a priori, rule out anything above it. We absolutely rule out human origin of the chess. We, by our, our scientific presuppositions, which is not on one level unreasonable, we rule out it's got to come from within the chess set itself. Well, they might come up with incredible insights. They might come up with incredible technology. They might come up with all sorts of theories. They might be able to build all sorts of fascinating things and create all sorts of wonderful, useful, helpful stuff based on all their science and, and things that work and all the rest. But inevitably, inevitably, whatever theory they come up with is going to have to be wrong because they've ruled out right from the start the one thing that explains it. Now, I'll take this analogy a little further and then I'll come back to where I was. This is what I believe theistic evolutionism is. Somebody comes along and says, you know, I look at this chessboard. I look at the pieces. I look at the moves. And I can't accept, I can't accept that this arose from within itself. I believe there was a human creator of the chess game. Okay? So far, so good. The problem, though, and this is the problem with intelligent design, this is the problem with theistic evolutionists. What, they, what I believe, in my humble opinion, I believe what happened is, for so many years, there's been so much data, so much science, all based on the assumption that chess arose from within itself, okay? So in other words, they, they're taking the, 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 the ideas, the assumptions, they're taking the theory based on this false assumption, but that's become the predominant paradigm. If we have some time, we'll look at the paradigm, Thomas Kuhn and the paradigm. It's so important. But that paradigm has become so entrenched, it's become so accepted, that they said, okay, well, we know that the process by which the chessboard created, you know, was created and so on, that's true, but we're going to stick humans in there, and somehow humans were involved in this process. Can you see the problem there? And that's exactly what I believe theistic evolution is. They look around, now come on, there's got to be something greater than just this by chance. But they've accepted the theory ignorant of the completely anti-biblical, anti-human, if you're going to use the chess thing, principles behind the theory. And so they accept that, and that's why, I mean, to me, the only thing more asinine, 
than atheistic evolution is theistic evolution. I mean, really, but the theistic evolution is due. I've got some great quotes in my book by atheist evolutionists. They just laugh at the way the theistic evolutionists. Let me give you one quick example of how pathetic it is. And this comes from one of our own. He may, some of you are kind of young. Some of you old enough to remember the name Desmond Ford. Okay, Ford gave the church fits. When I joined, I say, I got my start in the church fighting Desmond Ford, though it was on a separate issue. But poor Desmond Ford is now, he's not a theistic evolutionist. He's a little too sophisticated for that. He's a progressive creationist, mind you. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into all that, but the difference. But Dr. Ford understands something. Oh, I'm just going to chew a piece of gum if that's not too crude. Ford understands that you need Adam. If you don't have a sinless Adam, you don't have Christianity. Okay? You need a sinless Adam. There's a direct line from Adam to Jesus. But you know, how do you get a sinless Adam in an evolutionary paradigm? And see, Ford understands the problem. But Ford, it was fascinating. Ford said something. He said, we now live in an era dominated by modern science. In fact, he wrote this book called Genesis versus Darwin. And I thought, wow, Ford's going to come out. He, for some reason, he sent it to me. I don't know what he sent it to me for. What do you think? I was going to be sympathetic. But I read it. And he, um, he has this line where we now live in an era dominated by modern science. And I thought that was, that's the great myth. That's the myth. Well, it's science. We've got to accept it. So Ford accepts the science. But you run into a problem, a, a sinless Adam. Now, I got one woman in there, a writer in here. She just dismisses the whole idea completely, because that's a whole other thing. But Ford knows better than that. So what does Ford do? I'm not kidding you. Desmond Ford, and I use it in here as an example just to show you the lengths they go to. Desmond Ford argues, I'm not kidding, that the Adam of Genesis 1 through 324, the Adam that's created, and then the last verse, Genesis 324, and the man, the angel with the flaming sword, blocked the way of the man through the tree of life. The man, Adam. He argues that that Adam is a completely separate Adam, separated by a hundred thousand years from the Adam in the very next verse, Genesis 4, 1. Even though that Adam in the next verse, coincidence of coincidences, has a wife named who? Eve. And yet he argues that they're separated you know, I wrote a column about this. I wrote in the review, do you laugh or do you cry? That's what people are being... But it's science! The science says we got millions of years of evolution. We're in an era dominated by science. So typical of Christians. How do you think we got Sunday keeping? Where did Sunday keeping come from? Christians compromising. How did you get the Roman church? Christians compromising. And I use this example too. Are these Southerners today in Alabama and Mississippi, are they so much better Christians? Are they so much better people, even the secular ones, even the ones that don't go to church? Are they so much better people than their great-great-grandparents, church-going, God-fearing, slave-owning grandparents? 
that, these, that the rednecks there today would never consider treating African Americans the way their church-going, God-fearing, great-great-grandparents did. They wouldn't consider What was the difference? Culture. Look at what culture does. And in our culture, dominated by modern science, you got Desmond Ford teaching two Adams and two E's in the first few chapters of the Bible. Now, again, the point is, though, Science teaches us something completely different because it rules out the supernatural element. So it rules out the one, the thing that's correct. And we get this nonsense. Oh, you read some of the stuff they're arguing. They're saying that 800 million years ago, dinosaurs evolved feathers, and then the whale's ancestor left the water went to land, was a mammal on land for a little while, then the whale, then it went back to the water and became the whale, and on and on and on, all this stuff. So that's one reason why science gets origins wrong. It absolutely rules out a supernatural element. Unfortunately, creation is supernatural. So by default, it's going to have to get it wrong. The second, you got a question? Oh, okay. Okay. Now, the second element, this is fascinating too. The second element here is they're so, they're so paranoid about security. Every two minutes, my computer, because somebody got a hold of somebody's GC computer and got in and, well, I don't, you know, I'm supposed to tell you that. But, <laughs> yeah. Okay, now, here's the other, here's the other problem. We said two factors. Okay, the first, the supernatural, they completely rule out the supernatural element for supernatural creation. You're going to get it wrong. Okay, now the next one, we talked about the constancy of nature. That the rule, the laws of nature that were one day, the next day, the next day, which is true. We see that awful lot. And again, you couldn't do science if one day the law of gravity was gone or the law of gravity changed. Now, the gravity, it might change depending on the mass of an object around you, but it still follows this law-like pattern. Okay? That's fine, except it's not the way Reality really is, particularly when you go back to the creation. Let me read you a Bible text. Let's read a text. Therefore, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, this presupposes, try to imagine, try to imagine our world without death, okay? You can't. It's inconceivable to us without, let me read you this Ellen White quote. This is just, this just, ah, I, I am finding Ellen White, as I said before, we don't begin, begin to appreciate what we got, especially when she steps on your toes, but that's another. Ellen White talking about the pre-fall world. Again, I'm reading you scripture. Death entered through Adam, okay? It's clear. Death was not the means God used to create Adam. Death came through Adam. Listen to this quote. As they witnessed in drooping flower and falling leaf the first sign of decay, Adam and his companion mourn more deeply than men now mourn over their dead. The death of the frail, delicate flowers was indeed a cause of sorrow 
But when the goodly trees cast off their leaves, the scene vividly brought to mind the stirred fact that death is the portion. I gotta be more. You guys in the front row, I spit when I talk, so just be warned. I'm standing over here spitting it all over my computer, so you're all right. But when the goodly trees cast off their leaves, the scene brought vividly to mind the stern fact that death is the portion of every living thing. Now, think for a minute. This, to me, is, blows my mind. What can science, which can study only the, an environment where everything that lives dies, have teach us about an environment where nothing lived, died. Can you see what I'm saying here? There's a massive disconnect between the reality that science has to study now and, and, and what we're taught the world originally was. You know, to try to learn about the Oh, here's a, here's a line. To try and learn about the origins of life by studying what is here now, thousands of years after the physical changes brought by Adams. You know, Ellen White, Ellen White talked about the threefold curse. God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. The ground got cursed because of Cain. And it's fascinating when you read your Bible what you pick up. She also talked about the curse of the flood. And just the other morning, I was reading my devotion. And I'm just reading, the, I think, reading the first 11 chapters over and over in the Hebrew. Just reading them over and over. And the Lord says, I will know, in the context of the flood, I will no longer again curse the earth as I had done. So there was the word curse. And I thought of fascinating, Ellen White used the, the threefold curse. But the point is, the la- and I deal with a lot of, I deal with this in detail in the book, the, the world changed. The world changed from, you know, the, a, a change brought by Adam's fall, Cain's sin, and Noah's flood. I mean, studying the world, the origins of life now, I said here, would be like, studying street walkers in Paris to learn the origins of human sexuality. Okay, whatever you think of that image. I mean, think about it too. You read Genesis, it never rained. <laughs> you like that image? Yeah. All right, anyway. It was, it never rained. How do we comprehend a world that never rained? Okay, the rain didn't come until the flood. Okay, it's a totally different environment. And then even after the fall, I read this the other day too. As I said, I'm reading those first 11 chapters over and over. Even after the fall, think how different the world would be with with the antediluvians lived six, seven, eight hundred years. And Enoch was 160 years old or whatever and bore Methuselah. And so and so was 180 years old and born. I mean, we're talking about a radically different environment. We're talking about a radically different world. Okay? And so my point is, and then the other thing too, you know, I thought it was, and then the world, and they say, Oh, this was the other thing. I got in a, I got in a tussle. He was an Adventist minister. And he just, you know, he's bought the whole evolution package. And he was leading a tour to the Grand Canyon. And he was doing something about mocking Noah's flood or something. And I wrote him an email, you know, you know to me, don't even get me started to be an Adventist minister and believe that. I mean, don't even get me on that. But he said to me, he said, we have no flood model. He said, even our own scientists admit there's no flood model. And I thought, big deal.
deal. Big deal. Read the story of Noah. It was a supernatural event. Okay? It was a super... I mean, you go back and you read it. The, the, the great deep broke up. Things, you know, water came from the earth. You know, came out and then the... Oh, I mean, the whole thing to cover the whole world. And he said they'd have no flood model. Well, what was fascinating... I decided I was going to write a column on this in response. That's what's great. I got a column. I can vent it all out and publish it. And I call, it's on the review. It's called No Flood Model. If you want to read what I wrote about Ford, it's called Two Adams, Two E's. Just go to the review website. If you Google Cliff's Edge, I got tons of columns and stuff on some of this stuff. But I went back to read, what does Ellen White say about the flood? And she said, before the flood came, the quote, scientists and the philosophers said that no flood could come because it doesn't fit natural laws. Okay? In other words, before the flood, they said there was, there, there was no flood model. Therefore, they said no flood could come. And now, Millennia after the flood, there's no flood model. And they, so therefore they say no flood had come. But how are you going to get from the things of science something supernatural? And again, if, if it rules out the supernatural. Anyway, my point here is, so I guess the question here, this is the conundrum. The two principles upon which science works and science has to work. Listen, what time does it supposed to, what time do we, what time? Was it just about now, let's take a break. All right, let me finish this. The science, the question is, why does science get origins so wrong? Well, I think I tried to show why. The two foundational principles upon which it works and which basically it has to work on. You know, I don't want some, some doctor saying to me, all right, well, you know, we're going to do this and then we're going to evoke a supernatural charm. Sure, prayer is one thing. We believe in that element. But, you know, if I got a ruptured appendix, cut me open and take the appendix out, Okay. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to rely on faith healing. It doesn't say it doesn't happen, but that's not how it works. That's not how we want it. Well, we don't worry about the aerodynamics of the plane. God will send angels, and angels will keep the plane going. We don't want that, and science cannot work if it doesn't work with the consistency of nature, and that's all fine for things now, but in the end, in the end. Those, those principles, when it, comes to, when it comes to creation, break down and are false. And that, I think, is ultimately why science doesn't just get it wrong. Whew. Look how wrong it's got it. On every... I can't think of anything more contrary to the scriptural account of origins than evolution. Everything scripture teaches, evolution teaches the opposite. And I guess I'm not surprised because it, it, by its own rules, it ruled out aspects of the creation, which is why it's got it. I was hoping to get some time for questions. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.